It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor in London. I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 1st of June. You're listening to World Review, the New Statesman's international news podcast. This week, we discuss the drone attacks that have targeted Moscow. Is the war coming home to Russia? Now, as we know, they have gone as far as drone attacks. <coughs> this is a clear sign of terrorist activity. Then, we look at how Erdogan's election victory might affect Sweden's bid to join NATO. Will Erdogan continue to block Sweden from joining the military alliance? We've applied for NATO membership because we realize we need to defend freedom and democracy together, but also because we want to bring our own capabilities to common use. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. In the early hours of 30th of May, a drone attack was launched in Moscow. According to Russian authorities, eight drones were involved in the attack, though some Russian media outlets have said that the number of drones was roughly around 30. Now, this is by far the largest wave launched against Russia since the start of its war against Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin has called it a terrorist attack by Kiev. So, Katie, I'm going to start with you. I know we've talked about attacks within Russian borders quite frequently now on the podcast, but what do we know about Tuesday's attack so far? So I think one of the main things that's important about it is the location of these attacks. So there were multiple neighborhoods targeted, but specifically including one called Rublyovka, which is this absolutely expensive suburb on the outskirts of Moscow where the richest of the elite live and some of the most powerful politicians. So that's where the former president, Dmitry Medvedev, lives. It's where the current prime minister, Mikhail Mishustin, lives. And it's one of these areas where you sort of drive down a, a main road through all these sort of bucolic forests and you just see huge security gates, fencing surrounding these massive compounds. So that's really the heart of the Russian elite. And at least one of these drones was intercepted over that neighborhood. It's also pretty close to where Putin has his residence on the outskirts of Moscow, which is thought to be, although nobody knows for sure, where he spends the majority of his time. So this would seem to be, um, in part, an attempt to take the war home to sort of, you know, influential, high-profile individuals within Russia. 
and to really send this message of, you know, this war is coming to you and your families too. Because this follows really intense bombardments um, of Ukrainian cities and, and particularly Kyiv since the start of this month. And actually, during one of the latest raids, um, Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kyiv, went on television and said, why should Ukraine be a hell when people in, in Moscow are sleeping soundly in their beds? So I think this is an attempt to do that and to really shatter this sort of veneer of normalcy, particularly for the elite in the Kremlin. But beyond that, the um, Kremlin's version of events is that everything was um, successfully dealt with, that five were shot down, three were intercepted by electronic countermeasures, Putin has come out and said the air defense has worked well, we need to increase some of the density, but basically we've got this, we're on top of this. But some of the videos that we're seeing coming out of Moscow suggest that's not the case. There is damage to high-rise buildings, people were evacuated overnight, You know, perhaps that's from debris rather than direct impacts. But still, the message that sends to, to regular people in Moscow is that the war is coming here. These drones were able to penetrate these supposedly very formidable defences um, surrounding the capital. So again, I think this is part of the effort to just shatter that sense that the war was something that was happening on TV, in Ukraine, and that you could get on with your life as normal if actually attacks are happening in Moscow and more may come. And what has been the response so far? I know you said Putin has said, you know, we shot everything down, it's fine, our defences are strong and good. Has there been any counter to this within, whether it's the Russian media or, you know, Russian military bloggers, which have become hugely prominent within this war? Have we had any statements from Prigozhin, the head of Wagner Group? Yes, Prigozhin, predictably, um, has used this as a chance to go after his very familiar uh, enemies at the top of the um, Russian military command. I'm saying this is evidence of those defenses not working um, and that these people who have, you know, they're some of the ones who have these beautiful compounds in the Rudlovka neighborhood. This is coming for them because of their own incompetency. And yes, similarly, on some of the pro-Russian military channels, also some dismay about the degree to which these attacks were able to penetrate Moscow's air defenses which are not really designed to intercept drones. You know, these are primarily dating back to sort of Cold War era, you know, looking to target fast-moving intercontinental ballistic missiles or long-range nuclear bombers coming towards the Russian capital. They're not really set up for drones, which are very small, can fly very low, and which, you know, as some military experts explain it, basically if you focus the radar so tightly on objects that are as small as drones, then you're also picking up all the geese flying around Moscow. It, it's very, very hard. And Moscow is an absolutely vast city. It's very, very hard to protect all of that circumference against these very small drones. So Ukraine, I mean, Ukraine formally denies that it's behind this, but it, I think it, it makes sense that these are Ukrainian-directed attacks and they seem to be exploiting those vulnerabilities. So we did see, I mean, earlier this year, we saw surface-to-air missile systems um, being installed on the roof of the Ministry of Defense, for instance. And there are also these Pantsir, these um, truck-based surface-to-air missile defense systems that are now in operation around Moscow and which are being credited with shooting down some of these drones on Tuesday. But yeah, I think there have to be real questions about the extent to which these defenses would hold up against a longer or more continued um, attack. And I, I think that's probably part of the point too, you know, as we're all continually waiting um, for this much wanted Ukrainian counteroffensive, you know, one of the messages this sends is that you need to redirect resources, attention 
personnel, perhaps equipment, to protect major Russian cities. The same is true of the incursion that we saw in the Belgorod region last week. You know, a lot of Russian border guard units, the Rosguardia, have been sent to fight in Ukraine. So part of the message of that is you, you are going to need to redeploy these personnel to defend your own borders. So it's really bringing the war home in a psychological sense, but also shifting some of the focus in a logistical sense um, and creating real dilemmas, real issues for the Russian military chain of command, which is already, it's floundering. It's, it's not able to fight effectively in Ukraine, but now it also has to think about how, how to defend Russian territory too. A few things there. Kiev's response said they have nothing to do with it, which they also said about the drone attack on the Kremlin a few weeks back. But something that I have noticed in, in a lot of Western media and, and Western military analysts commenting on these is they've kind of just shed any illusion that Ukraine is behind this and that it is part of Ukraine's larger war effort against Moscow. When we talked about the drone strikes on the Kremlin, for instance, we injected, a, I think at the time, a reasonable degree of skepticism about was this Ukraine or was this a, a false flag attack, which Russia had significant form for perpetrating. It, the whole thing seemed so cinematic with the, you know, the, the shots of the drones exploding right above the Kremlin that there was real confusion at the time as to who was behind that. And it looked most likely that it was Ukraine, but Ukraine was very strongly denying it. The logic that this was a kind of false flag attack was that this was then going to justify some sort of major escalation on Ukraine from Russia. And yes, we have seen repeated terrible aerial bombardments um, since then, but nothing that would play into that pattern. Um, so it did not seem to fit this narrative that it was a premeditated Russian-designed attack. And I think on the Ukrainian side, too, there has been a desire to sort of feed this narrative that it's not Ukraine, it's Russian partisans acting within Russia who are sympathetic to Ukraine, again, to sort of sow confusion and, and fear within Russia. I think it is becoming increasingly clear that, you know, as in the Belgorod case, some of the people involved may be Russian citizens, but they are backed, they're using vehicles supplied by, they are acting in concert with the Ukrainian forces. And I think with the, the drone attacks on Moscow that we're seeing now, we're also seeing, I mean, quite an interesting reaction here in the United States, which is to say we don't in general support attacks within Russian territory and certainly not using US supplied equipment. There's still that concern here that if US weapons are used to attack Russian territory, then that can lead to an escalation and that could bring the US more directly into the war. But in the same statement, the White House press secretary said, but we need to understand there have been 17 air raids on Kyiv so far this month. So I think there is a little bit more of a sort of understanding of, yes, we don't want you to do this with our weapons, but we understand why you're doing it. So I don't think there's going to be, you know, there aren't, I'm sure, strong phone calls going in from here to say, listen, stop this. It's a terrible idea. I think everybody understands the situation that the Ukrainian government is in and, and what they're trying to achieve here. James Cleverly, the UK's foreign secretary, said, I believe yesterday evening, he said, while he couldn't comment on the specifics of this case because he had no background intel on, on who was behind it, but he pointedly said, you know, Ukraine reserves the right to defend itself outside of its borders if that is what it takes. Um, 
paraphrasing, but it was along those lines. He, he made clear that Ukraine essentially could bring the war to Russia if that's what it took to defend themselves. So I think there's a real softening of that line, even just within over the course of the last few weeks from what we've expected. I wanted to ask you, Katie, about the coming spring counteroffensive that we've been, it feels like we've been talking about for, for so long and it's been much hyped. Could this be part of it? I mean, it certainly could be part of the preparations for it. I mean, I think our experience last year of waiting for the Kherson offensive and then actually the main strike in the first instance was in the Kharkiv region is that we may not know when it has started. It may already have started. This may be part of it and it may well not look like what we're expecting. So I think with all of the focus on Kherson last year, that did cause Russia to redeploy units southwards and that left them exposed, which Ukraine then exploited very successfully. So I think we shouldn't expect it to be sort of one solid, you know, great big arrow moving moving down a map, um, as the illustrations tend to show it. I think we should expect this to be multifaceted. And you know, one of the strengths of the Ukrainian military's approach to this war has been their flexibility and their ability to fight using unconventional means at times um, and to really utilize much better intelligence than the Russians have and to exploit Russian vulnerabilities. That's how they have fought and won so far. So that's what I would expect them to do going forward. But I think this is also that it's part of this attempt to puncture Putin's approach, his theory of victory has been and still seems to be, look, we can do this forever. We can do this for years and years and years beyond your ability to sustain this war and certainly beyond the West's ability um, and the West's patience and the West's fickle attention span to support you. So we can outlast you. We can do this. This isn't undermining you. My position in Russia is secure. I can keep going longer than you can. And I think this is part of an attempt to, to shock that and to say, this is not going to look like that. As I've said, this is not going to be a war on remote control that's happening on TV screens. If you want to continue to fight this war, this is what it's going to look like. So you can't get so comfortable and you can't be as sure that you can maintain this over a large number of years if your own citizens are going to start to feel the costs more directly. So could we see a further escalation within Russia? I mean, we certainly could. I think it's certainly likely that we'll see more targeting of facilities supporting the military operations. So we've already seen earlier today, we're recording this on Wednesday, a fire at an oil refinery in the Krasnodar region in southern Russia. I think we will see, you know, as and when they can hit logistics facilities and anything sort of behind the Russian lines, I think we should expect them to do that. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this is not the last attack on, on Russia or on other major Russian cities, because Moscow has very significant air defenses. It's not clear whether St. Petersburg, which is Putin's hometown, is it as well defended? Is Vladivostok or some of the other? One of the issues is the further you get from assuming that, you know, as, uh, with all the caveats that Ukraine says, this is not them. Um, the further you get from Ukraine, the harder this is to sustain. So a, a strike on a city in Siberia, or if I was sort of being flippant about Vladivostok in the Far East, is likely beyond the current capabilities, but it's not just Moscow that the Kremlin needs to be thinking currently about defending. And I, I don't think this is likely to be the last strike of its kind. We'll be discussing this again, as we say, as a regular catchphrase now on the podcast, but I'm sure we'll 
be returning to this. So we'll be returning to this story. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So on Sunday, the 28th of May, Recep Tayyip Erdogan took 52.16% of the vote in the second round of the presidential elections against opposition leader Kemal Kilic-Darola, who only took 47.8%. So Erdogan, who's already spent more than 20 years in power in Turkey, has now secured his presidency for at least another five. While many expect that his hold on the country will tighten, some analysts now think that his foreign policy approaches, especially towards the West, could soften. Megan, let me jump in here to ask you a question as our resident Scandinavia expert. Firstly, can you just situate us in the background to this? What is Erdogan's objection to Sweden joining NATO and what steps has Sweden taken to address that? So yeah, this all began last year when Finland and Sweden simultaneously decide to throw out decades, but in Sweden's case, centuries of military non-alignment and ask to join NATO. Most of the alliance welcomed them with open arms and said they were very happy to hear that. 
Erdogan as the president of Turkey, which is a powerful NATO ally, was very quick to throw up his objection. He initially objected to both Sweden and Finland, but his his criticisms really kind of focused on Sweden. He was particularly angered by the fact that Turkey in general says that Sweden harbors militants from the banned Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, which took up arms against the Turkish state in 1984 and is considered a terrorist group, not just within Turkey, but within the EU and in the US. So Finland got approval by all NATO members in March, and it gained approval from Turkey by kind of changing some of its policies. It didn't have to do much, but it tightened some anti-terrorism laws and it lifted an arms embargo on Turkey. Sweden has also taken steps to calm Erdogan's fears. There was a loophole in Sweden's immigration policy that essentially Kurdish people were able to get in. Obviously, no one who was uh, designated officially as a terrorist, but people who you know could have had some kind of affiliation with members of the PKK. So that loophole has now been closed and officially takes um, effect June the 1st. But it is not yet clear if that will be enough to pacify Erdogan. Erdogan is notorious for using whatever leverage he can to get himself the best deal possible. Some may say that makes him a very effective politician, but he was particularly adamant in the run-up to the election to portray his strongman appeal. And a lot of that was talking about how he was absolutely blocking Sweden. He would never, never wanted to see Sweden join NATO if they were going to harbor terrorists that were particularly against the Turkish state. Now that he's won the election and doesn't really need to project that kind of position to his domestic audience, there are some analysts who think that he could kind of scale that back. But he's still likely to want to try and get to sweeten the deal a little bit more in his favor. So Katie, I'll come to you on this because we all, we've heard a lot about the F-16s that Turkey is desperate to have, but it's really, it it is a a bargaining tool that Biden has, has in his arsenal. So I kind of wanted to come to you about where Congress is on this and what's the likelihood that Erdogan could get those, those jets. Yeah, so just the context to this is Turkey wants um, a package of US F-16 fighter jets, um, and that deal is currently being held up by Congress. Um, We know that Biden spoke to Erdogan on Monday, nominally to congratulate him on his re-election, but he said they discussed the fighter jets, which Erdogan still wants, and that Biden said to him, well, we want a deal with Sweden, so let's get this done. The difficulty for the Biden administration is that they don't totally control that. Um, As events have repeatedly demonstrated over the last two years, Congress is a separate arm of the government and is want to do its own thing, to put it diplomatically. And there is a sort of sequencing issue here where Erdogan has said that Congress should greenlight the F-16s. Then we can talk about Sweden joining NATO and Congress has said Turkey needs to agree to Sweden joining first. But I think there is some degree of optimism here that as you very eloquently explained that there was an understanding here of this is how domestic politics works. This was a real talking point for Erdogan during the election. They understood that he wanted to be seen to be absolutely tough and uncompromising on terrorism. 
But now that the election is over, that's where they see the scope for movement um, and for more concerted pressure. So we've also seen Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State in Sweden on Tuesday, talking about, you know, this is the time to move forward. Let's get this done. And talking about potentially being able to get it done by the NATO summit that is coming in Vilnius on the 11th of July. Um, so I think we're going to see a real concerted push from here um, and from other Western allies to try to do that. But I guess the real question is whether Erdogan still thinks he can extract something more from himself in the process. Yeah, that's the thing. Erdogan, it's too tricky to really try and put too many expectations on him because he he can be quite a wild card. I know Sweden's Prime Minister, Olaf Kristersson, was kind of looking forward to the opportunity to maybe speaking with him tomorrow on Thursday at the European Political Community meeting in Moldova. But Erdogan has just said today, Wednesday, that he will not be attending after all. So it's still unclear if he will actually shift position, especially in time for the, the Vilnius summit. But there is more optimism now than there was, I think, two months ago. On that uncharacteristically for us optimistic note, that's all the time we have for today. If you're a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a great review. Our producer has been Misha Frankel-Duval. Thank you for listening and until next time.